Welcome to the Talent Talk with Robert Walters podcast, where we speak to business leaders around the globe to bring you the latest trends and insights from the world of work. Kia ora and welcome to Talent Talk with Robert Walters. I'm Andy McLean, a journalist and podcaster who has lived and worked in both Australia and New Zealand. In this podcast mini-series, we're exploring what diversity, inclusion and equity really means for employers and employees on both sides of the Tasman. We're going beyond the slogans and behind the scenes to reveal the real benefits, challenges and solutions in hiring and retaining a diverse workforce. Along the way, you'll hear voices and ideas from a whole range of backgrounds. And in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Agnes Nida and Joe Considine. Agnes is CEO of Global Women in New Zealand. She's an entrepreneurial education and professional leader with more than 15 years experience in the education sector. And she's recognised for championing a more diverse and inclusive Aotearoa New Zealand. Joe is a colleague of Agnes's at Global Women, where he works as Director of Champions for Change and Global Women Advocacy. He previously worked in several strategic roles at Chartered Accountants ANZ, including as Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Strategy Lead. In this episode, we discuss diversity and inclusion in the New Zealand workforce. Where are we today? Where do we want to be tomorrow? And perhaps most importantly, how can we achieve that vision with the courage and commitment of New Zealand's HR leaders and hiring managers. Here's our discussion. So you've both chosen to dedicate your careers to diversity and inclusion. And I just wondered what it was that led you to that calling. Agnes, perhaps you can tell us, like, where did it start for you? How did you end up where you are now? Kia ora, Andy. Hey, look, I suppose I should just premise uh, for those that are on the, you know, that are listening, is um, so that I am Māori and I whakapapa back to the Hukianga, which is in the north, and I think that's really important. And the second thing is that we grew up in Auckland and were educated in Auckland, had access to everything, but we went home every holidays to my grandparents. So we definitely grew up in both those worlds, but the world that is strongest for me is Te Ao Māori and Hukianga. And I think the idea about a calling as opposed to a career. So the calling for me has been led by people in front of me, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my parents, my aunties and uncle. Uh, And for for all of them, they are in service of a better time or better place or better opportunities for our people. Um, You know, and I give the example of kuanga reos, which are New Zealand's equivalent to early childhood. Um, so, you know, they were unfunded for nearly five years before uh, the government of the time decided that they had value. Uh, so, again, um, the, the idea that they just did what needed to be done, and that was their calling, that was their whole life's calling, right until they passed away, they never wavered from their responsibility and their love for the, the future. So my father made many decisions uh, and they weren't really for us, they were for his grandchildren. Um, so to be in service of, but but also that that had benefits for this country, whether that was economically, socially or politically. And although none of them were educated the way that we were, they knew that. That was instinctive and intuitive to who they were. So yes, I think calling is a better. The idea that I can use that 
for the work that I do, that's kind of was never going to be. I was never going to take up a role. It's just not something that would happen. Um, so, you know, my, my love has always been in education. And, and again, you'll see for Māori, the majority of Māori work in the public sector because we can make that change that we want to be and want to see. Kāpai. And how about you, Joe? How, how is this a calling for you? Tell us your origin story. Yeah, kia ora, Andy. So um, diversity, equity and inclusion has been really important to me in terms of finding a collision point between um, the values of my um, family. So my family are all working in um, social justice areas. My sister works for Oranga Tamariki, which is a um, government department in um, New Zealand. And my um, both my parents set up social service agencies. So I kind of grew up in that, in that space. I've actually had a career of 20 years in professional and financial services strategy. So not my mahi hasn't aligned necessarily to my um, family values until I found um, this amazing um, um, part of work and this diversity, equity and inclusion where I could marry up um, my values and background and whānau background and social justice and my experience in commercial um, strategy. And, and it just feels great to have found um, my thing, really, where I can marry those two things up. Now, we've, so we've talked a little bit about your personal um, purposes. I'm, I'm also interested in global women's vision, um, which is to make business worlds as diverse as New Zealand itself. Agnes, why is that? Why is that so important? Look, I think in kind of our vision for global women is a better, a gender equitable Aotearoa New Zealand. And, and I think we do need to reference the founders. Um, you know, Dame Jenny was one of those. And, you know, I, I, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like to be the first woman prime minister in this country at that time. And similarly today, having Teresa Getting as my chair, the first woman to lead in NZX. And so I kind of refer it to our hooness. And that was their hooness. You know, Dame Jenny was really clear that it was unacceptable that we were still not seeing women at a governance level. And it was going to take more than just crossing our fingers and waiting for day to day. And so, you know, Global Women was kind of born out of that. She she managed, as you would expect, to get a few other wahi, and then she managed to convince mainly men that were leading organisation that we need you, your money and your resources to lean in. But again, I think if all of that was about our who-ness, because that never goes away. The idea about diversity and inclusion is something that will remain part of all of what we do regardless how much better we get at that. But it's what drives me. It's my hoonness around that. And it did certainly was for founding members and is for Teresa now in terms of her hoonness around women and entrepreneurship. Mm. And, and if we think about that aspiration to make business worlds as diverse as New Zealand itself, how would you say New Zealand is tracking towards that right now? So in terms of the progress, one of the big things that I've observed in my short time here is about nationhood, not because you're the chief executive for ANZ or you're the chief executive, but really that collaborative leaning in and knowing that the power comes from collectivism. Now, that's something innate in Māori. We've always kind of known that. So it's really humbling to see that business. So they talk about nationhood. They talk about the social license that they need to operate in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So at a high level thinking, I think we certainly are seeing progress. The progress that's been made at kind of a more 
micro at a little more granular level, there's work to be done. But my experience is if you have that thinking, that high level thinking at leadership, it will happen. Mm. And obviously we've had a seismic change run through um, every nation around the world in the past couple of years in the form of COVID. Uh, Joe, I'm interested in terms of the pandemic conditions. They've had kind of a really positive and a negative impact on on female participation in, in the workforce. I just wondered if you had any observations in terms of where we find ourselves now and, and what we've seen in the last couple of years in terms of women in the workplace. You're exactly right, Andy, that the pandemic has had positive and also negative impacts for women um, in the in the workplace. Um, so the, the move to um, scaled, flexible and hybrid working has um, boosted workforce participation um, by women and has provided more equitable access to male-dominated industries and occupations. So that, that's been a really... Um, positive impact for women out of the pandemic, that there's been more, less unemployment or underemployment for women. Um, they've had more access into some of those industries where they've been underrepresented. That's been that's been a great thing. But also there have been some negative consequences for women, particularly around the economic fallout, and um, which has had a regressive effect on equality. Um, so women have been more vulnerable to job loss in, that, in those two years of the pandemic so far. Um, the research has showed that they've been less recognised and actually hybrid working um, and, and working from home for women um, sometimes prevents them from being seen um, even more than they are, that they're not seen when they're in the workplace and they don't have as many ac- as much access to leaders and, and networking opportunities. So that, that's been a big thing as well. And, and also really coming th- um, strongly through the researchers um, that women are more burnt out than men during the same period because they've been doing more inside the workplace as well as outside the workplace. So we already know that women are doing far more work than men in terms of unpaid care responsibilities and domestic um, tasks outside of the house. My favourite stat around that is in any day, a woman does 262 minutes of unpaid work, uh, whether that's caring responsibility or, or around the house, and men do 64 minutes. It's a really big difference uh, in that. So they've been doing that. But also what the research has shown is that women are doing more inside as leaders inside the workplace around checking in on well-being, um, on making sure that their teams um, are managing their workloads and some of those really inclusive leadership capabilities um, women are showing and so they're doing more inside and outside which is causing this burnout through the pandemic. Wow yeah I mean and that's so interesting isn't it Joe because some of the things you're talking about are really not visible to employers unless they kind of seek out that information from their employees. That's right. And, and employers need to um, understand that through through the mechanisms that they have through surveying and things like that, but also being aware, having those conversations with their, with women to support female leaders, understanding um, that they have um, a higher propensity to be doing work, work out, unpaid work outside of the workplace and all of that great stuff that they're doing inside the workplace, which, which largely goes unrecognised to your point. Agnes, we, we still have some, you know, notable uh, power gaps in the workforce. We've still got predominantly white, heterosexual, middle-aged men sitting around boardroom tables. What do you think is the challenge for business in terms of getting meaningful change? Like if we were to think about it systemically, what changes do we need to see? 
Oh, look, I think just going, uh, something you just said before, the idea about seeking, but also back to that conversation around, it's got to be in people's minds. It's got to be part of their thinking. Um, and so we've, we've talked about this idea about if there's a power gap, how what does power sharing look like and what does that kind of mean? And who's up for that? Because, you know, you, when you've been the dominant culture and the dominant player, it must be a, a difficult thing to wake up one day and think, oh, you know, I, I need to do something kind of differently. Um, and without kind of breaking any kind of sensitivity, these organisations that certainly do that, they've, they've innovated the idea of lateral hires. So they've not only laterally hired, but they've also almost set up these little mini. So you're not reliant on an HR policy or, or the general way of doing things. You bring in, really smart people who don't look like you and bring a whole lot of different things. You give them not an open checkbook, but you certainly give them bandwidth to do what they want. One of those organisations. So some of the hires, they've hired a Māori because they papa to iwi. Not, not because they're good at their, that they can do the technical. And that actually this young man papa is to two really important iwi that they might be working with. He brings the te ao, he brings his language. So, so that idea, so that's one way of sharing power or doing business differently. That also takes lots of courageous, you've got to be up for a bit of risk because it could have got, it could go horribly wrong. You know, they're bringing in people or the person they brought in to do this, but they brought her in based on her, her discipline area of knowledge and expertise. So that's guaranteed. Then they have to take a bit of a risk and allow her to do it the way. So that kind of seems like a really smart thing to do. Um, I was saying they did it at Frontera a couple of years ago. They had a challenge with millennials. They did the same thing. So they set up a unit to let them run. They put some rules around what was the revenue they had to bring, all of that, and they let them get on with it. So that's what I suppose power sharing looks like. Oh, that's really interesting because what you're talking about there is is not only let's say that the hiring and the recruitment side of this right but it's this it's, it's actually providing the support network around people so that they can succeed once they're on board and allowing the right people to lead that as opposed to what often happens is other people lead it and you expect that other talent to kind of fit or as Joe kind of describes it, you try and put them in to fit in the other way. This way, it's being led by the diversity and supported by mainstream, which is a really different model. So probably the two common factors that I see in organisations who are really um, quickly advancing their maturity around diversity, equity and inclusion are one, the chief executive is so important. You know, it's an obvious one um, um, within the space, but the, the CE needs to understand and buy into the um, business case around implementing um, transformative change within their organization around diversity, equity and inclusion. One, they need to get it and they need to be passionate about it and believe in it. But the second thing around that is that the chief executive needs to have a support structure around them, a, a really supportive board, um, executive team, um, other support structures around them to allow them to make bold transformative action decisions implement policy which to Agnes's point before is risky because some of some of that in terms of the perception of the stakeholders and customers things like publicly reporting your um, your 
your pay gaps, things like, um, you know, all of those things that, that Agnes was talking about before, making, making bold recruitment um, decisions around recruiting in um, what you might not call a culture fit into the organisation, but a culture ad, um, all take courage. And, and so that requires the support. So, yeah, the two main factors are uh, a CE that gets it and a board and a support structure that allows that transformative action. So for Māori, we've always known what the end game is, you know, and we're talking about two generations ahead. So business is starting to do that. And so then if you start there as opposed to what's in front of us, you, you have to kind of innovate. You have to be courageous. Otherwise, we're only going to take one step in the right direction. And so for Māori, that's never been an option. We are not going to wait two more generations or even one more generation. So business is starting to, to do that. I mean, you know, Māori always had 25-year strategic plans. Business is starting to do that now. So they're starting to really think about that generation without them. And I think that's another that's another difference that we're seeing, that leaders are starting to understand that they are kaitiaki for the time they are, and it'll never be done. So do the best you can. And I think that gives people license to do more, to be more courageous, because you kind of get one shot. Now, if you're sitting at the top, why wouldn't you take a shot at it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, part of this is actually, if you think about it from a personal level for these chief executives, it's about what sort of legacy do you want to leave behind? What does tomorrow look like for the organisation? The day you, you want to leave the organisation in better shape than the than the day you arrived, right? It's a, it's a well-worn phrase, but it's absolutely true. And so thinking long-term, as you sort of talk about, you know, in terms of decades, uh, can be really quite transformational if you think about your role as kind of a stepping stone towards something else. Interesting. I went to the... Matariki Awards last night, which are um, hosted by Fakata Māori, what was Māori television. And so the Lifetime Award went to a, a Māori who, right from an early age, knew that te reo and tikanga was important. And so, you know, his legacy, he will remember while he's alive. But that's, and that's what chief executives do want, is what will they be remembered for? Because it won't be that they build a nice building or whatever. What did they really, and I, and I do see that in chief executives now. I see them really wanting to, you know, what will I be known for? Yeah, that's great. Well, we've talked a little bit about chief executives. The audience for this podcast, many of the listeners right now will be working in HR or they'll be hiring managers. And I'm interested in their role because it seems to me that they can be really, really powerful in terms of achieving greater equity, diversity and inclusion. So, Agnes, what would be your message for HR and hiring managers about the impact that they can have? They are really critical. They can either be the door openers or the door closers. And we all want to be door openers. And, and I'm sure they do. But but I think, first of all, recruitment, again, this is my perspective, has kind of been a bit of a one-way thing. It certainly needs to be a two-way. What does two-way look like? And from whether it's putting out the recruitment ad or re- doing the thing is what's that language say who you know what what do I want people to kind of know about us and I don't just mean and there's some transparency in that what is and I'm sure there is but what's the challenge about putting out the pay scale you know but but if you had a HR process that was completely transparent you know and I get that right now in the talent shortage that mightn't be the way to kind of go but again 
you need to think about this as long term. So there might be, you might suffer some pain in the short, but you'll gain in the long. So I think hiring managers, look, it's interesting, you know, we've practiced one way for a very long time in terms of what is human resource. And that sounds like a really awful word anyway, because we're kind of equating humans to being resources. So, so even that, you know, we kind of just need to reframe that because I see good practitioners as critical strategic door openers. You know, so what's that? And I talked the other day about the process of pōhiri because the purpose of pōhiri is actually the practice of HR, you know, because you're, you're testing are they friends or are they foes and you end up in a place where actually we're, we're the same, although we have some differences, but where's that magic? And we use the process of sharing kai as making everybody nor or the same. And so that's, in my view, HR processes need to be, some of them are good, but they need to be undone again. What does it look like? A couple of years ago, or many years ago, when I was at AUT, all ups to Westpac. So they were trying to recruit Māori and Pacifica. And so they broke down their whole process. So one of the really brave things they did is they took on students who weren't A or B students, weren't necessarily doing finance. And their goal was is to have bank managers who were representative of the communities. So everything they threw out, they took them and they valued what they bought in terms of that. And one of them now is a bank manager out in Papatoi. So they, they just, they knew what the end goal was. And then they went, what do we need to keep the system in the system to give us some assurity? And out of the 10 things, there was probably two things they had to keep. And they threw the other eight things out. They taught them the finance thing as part of the cadet program. And, and they were the best people to kind of teach them. So that's a really strong example of acknowledging that the system had two valuable things, eight of them weren't, and they needed Pacifica or people representative. So hopefully that's helpful. They do need to, you just need to take a breath and go, what's really working? What's stopping us from getting that? Any other remarks you'd have, Joe, in terms of the role that hiring managers can play here? I'm really passionate about this concept around recruiting for culture ad and not culture fit. This is about taking a breath um, in that recruitment process and taking a long-term view around the talent that is going to add significant value to your organization from a different perspective rather than what's right in front of you in terms of the objective that you have potentially within that role over the next six to 12 months. And I think the, the pandemic has played a role in, into that as well in that we're all busy, um, you know, hybrid working, everyone's stuck in meetings um, all day. I think, you know, timelines around projects are really squeezed. So what I've observed um, in, in corporate New Zealand is that um, recruitment is under pressure, particularly in a tight labour market in this war for talent, where you're looking to try and get someone in as soon as you can. And it's and the common phrase is we need a safe pair of hands to come in and deliver this project. Now, when I hear that and and what's the culture fit of that of that talent coming into our organization, what I hear is, do they look and sound like me? Um, will they agree with all my brilliant ideas? Um, do I kind of know them and will they get me? And that's easy because they'll come in and you'll you'll be able to do that work with them and that'll all be fun. The 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 thing about recruiting for culture ad 
is that there might be a period of time when that talent comes into your organization where you might need to, it might be a bit niggly, you might need to um, work with them around understanding their unique perspective that they bring, whether that's a cultural um, or ethnic perspective or a different gender identity. Um, and, and so you don't get there as fast as you um, would like to with that other decision. But over a longer period of time, that unique perspective is going to drive higher innovation, um, productivity, um, you know, a much stronger performance um, across a whole lot of um, strategic objectives for your business. So it's about taking that longer term view around talent, being patient and, and okay with that frustration at the start that might happen um, because it's going to pay off in the long term. And I think, Andy, just that idea about, you know, most people's part of most people's mission is about, you know, if they're in a service or a product is about customer service. And so how do you kind of continue to put a, a lens across when you're asking questions of the new talent or the talent you have? So one of the things that most people would agree with that, you know, part of the DNA for Māori or for Pacifica in particular, and I won't speak about anyone else, but it sure is, is an idea of service. So how do you how do you, how do you think about that as an HR? Okay, so this person is coming and they understand service. Imagine if I can leverage all of that. So it's really kind of pointing out those things. Uh, we were in a meeting with one of our uh, champions, one of our organisations, and she happened to say, "Look, we pay for this talent or the, these skills that we can't quickly get off market. So why wouldn't you pay?" or remunerate someone that is fluent in te reo Māori, even if it's not in their job description, but knowing you have someone in the organisation that clearly thinks differently. Because, you know, someone could go to them and say, oh, look, say her name, Jo. Let's go and ask Jo, because she's going to have a different perspective because she's been raised in te reo Māori. So, you know, so you have to understand what it is or know what it is and then and then utilise it. You need to You need to remunerate it somehow. It's a bit like people who are, you know, that are, have different ways of their brain operates. They, they're going to come up with something different. You know, and some people go, oh, my God. But actually, that's gold. That's very interesting. We have done a previous episode with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander business leaders. We've talked about the importance of businesses valuing Indigenous knowledge and, and ways of thinking. Rather than, you know, I suppose, sort of doing a bit of cultural theft, if you like, but actually really properly engaging and valuing what they're bringing to the table and really entrenching it in the long term, as you've just talked about. So it's really interesting to hear on the other side of the Tasman that you're having a, a similar kind of discussion. It's great. And I just kind of want to offer a simple example of the difference. So my son wasn't brought up with today was his first language, nor were the others. And then I've got friends that were. So because in terms of te ao Māori, everything is a living being. The idea that you would harm a plant, you know, and that's why for Māori that are, they have a karaki or prayer before they cut the flax. So that's the difference between someone that is Māori that, that operates that way as opposed to the, the different respect that you would have for living plants. But if, you've, if that's the only immersion you've had you see the world differently, you behave differently, you offer differently. So if non-Māori and an HR manager could understand what they have when they employ a Māori, young or old, 
that has only been immersed in a te ao Māori world, the value in that, what they could leverage or what they could kind of make work for them in an organisation is kind of phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. If you put that in the context of, you know, ESG, which is now driving capital flows, you know, that's where money is following ESG now. There's a, you know, there's a commercial benefit there. It's easy to draw that line, isn't it? It very much is. Joe, I do want to call one thing out, which is something that I've been very conscious of, actually, as the host of this podcast series. Like myself, you're a privileged white male, and here we are talking about diversity and inclusion on a podcast. So I, what I wanted to do, I suppose, is just get your reflection on how we can make sure that we're part of the solution and not part of the problem. Mm. That's a really good question, Andy, and something that I'm, I'm really passionate about is around male allyship. And I think the first step in that, um, in terms of my own journey, is uh, leaning into your own privilege and, and understanding that privilege has played a part in my story. So I, I, when you think about the diversity dimensions um, that we talk about, I'm a um, white, heterosexual, able-bodied, um, you know, in the higher socioeconomic group and educated um, male. And so, you know, you think about all of those things, every outcome that I've had um, in my life has been under a foundation or on top of a foundation of privilege. And so I think that's been a really important part of me understanding that. And then the next step is, okay, well, what role does that have and can that have for me being an ally for others that don't have that privilege? And I think, you know, we talk about empathy as it's often described as walking in other people's shoes. Now, I don't think that is a good definition of empathy because I don't think that you can walk in someone else's shoes. If you haven't had the lived experience of that other person, whether that's a, another ethnicity or a cultural background, it's impossible, I think, for you to walk in their shoes. What you can do, though, and what I think I, what I try and do is walk beside them. Um, and listen to their story and be a steward of their story. Um, what one one of the things that um, you know that that term mansplaining comes in is as us men are often uh, we're quick to come up with a solution. We'll cut the person off and say, "Well, have I got a solution for you? All you need to do is this, 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 and this, and this, and this." And you're actually um, not using your um, uh, your ears and you're using your mouth. So I think listening to other people, being a steward of their story, and then asking them. How might I support you and what you want to achieve? And, and then working with them on that. And then and then, you know, for men, this power gap that we're that we're that we're talking about, men are overrepresented in senior executive positions in um in the private and public sector and on boards. And so because men are in those positions, and I've been in those positions, um, you have power to create policy change, to sponsor people, to open doors into the into new opportunities of growth and talent pathways for underrepresented groups. And so take that opportunity, use your privilege and your position of power to serve others and be a steward of their story is, is kind of part of my mission. Yeah, it goes right back to that conversation we were having earlier about legacy too, doesn't it? If you can look around the organisation that you're working in on the day you leave and it looks and feels different, then you've had an impact. Absolutely. And I think the beautiful thing about this is it has commercial outcomes as well. Like, you know, we talk about the social justice element to it. This is not just a social justice story. 
this is an absolute commercial imperative for organizations to adopt or they will be left behind you know that all of the data um, shows that 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 organizations with gender balance with ethnic balance will outperform those without gender balance and ethnic balance significantly i think it's 25 percent for gender balance i think it's 34 percent for um, ethnic diverse organizations according to a mckinsey study back in in 2019 so the business case is really clear so that's why i love this this work is that you have the service to others and the social justice element but i'm a business person i'm not doing this just because um, it's the right thing to do I think it's an absolute strategic imperative for organisations now and in the future to adopt so that they're successful. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Um, now, we're running out of time. So, Agnes, I'm going to just ask you for any, I guess, parting message that you might have for HR and hiring managers listening today. Look, I think it goes back to your seeking. Good leaders, HR managers and HR people, need to seek out different experiences. I agree with Joe that you can't walk, but you do need to go. And I do this all the time. You know, I belong to clubs and that, that there's no Māori. And I do that because of the exposure of what I learn. So hiring managers, and not just in your day job, but more often, if you want to be a navigator for people, you need to be intentional about being in places that are not you. And that's not that hard to do. People say to me, oh, but there is, just look out. Now, whether that's going to, for someone who that's never been to something Pacific, there's lots of, there's a Pacifica festival, there's that, you know, there's some really non-confrontational opportunities to kind of experience something different. And for the first time, for it not to be in your language and other, the most of the majority of people not look like you. So I encourage anyone that wants to be a great navigator for the organisation or what people call HR uh, to go and have some different experiences. And they, that will shape and inform you differently about how you see the world and who might, how you might interact with others. My view is you only need, if you've got a team of 12, you only need 10. There's uh, two of you. There's always a ripple effect. Just take one step. Love it. Joe, any final comments? Um, I think purpose is so important to the future of talent, organisation purpose and transparency particularly. So um, talent now are looking to organisations who um, are aligned to a purpose, have really strong values, have inclusive leadership and are transparent. Transparency builds trust for talent. So when organisations are um, reporting their pay gap publicly, uh, are reporting their ethnicity representation and pay gaps within their organisations, are reporting the action plans that they have around their diversity, equity and inclusion um, strategies and have leaders who are honest and transparent on their journey, talent will flock to those organisations and they will retain the existing talent that they have through building inclusive cultures. So it's just a, a big challenge out to um, not just the HR teams, but throughout organisations is that, you know, transparency is a real currency now for, for talent. Wonderful. Uh, Agnes, Joe, thank you very much for a really enjoyable and enlightening discussion. Okay, bye. Andy. Kia ora, Andy. Thanks for listening to today's episode, which is part of Robert Walter's mini-series tackling diversity, inclusion and equity from numerous perspectives. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to our channel and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.